This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Today we're going to take a break from our normal exploration of high-profile self-defense cases to look at the CCW Safe list of the top 10 things to do in the wake of a self-defense shooting. Uh, Don West and I, Don West is National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and a veteran criminal defense attorney. He and I have started our exploration of this list in a past episode. Uh, If you haven't heard that one, I recommend you go back into the archives and find it. Our first episode on this top 10 list was covering points one and two. Point one is make sure you are safe in the immediate aftermath of a self-defense shooting. And two, very important, is be the first to call 911. Today we're going to look at steps three and four. Uh, step three is to initiate the emergency response. And that's more than just calling 911 and reporting the shooting. That's also asking for medical assistance for anyone who needs it. That could be yourself if you were attacked and suffered violence at the hands of another. And it could... Uh, almost ironically include the attacker, the person that you've just shot, who moments ago made you fear for your life. Uh, Now if they're neutralized and injured but not dead, you're going to want to get help for them as well. We'll talk about that. And point number four is prepare for responding officers. Uh, This is important because uh, you've just been involved in a shooting. You are armed and now police are on their way to respond to a shooting and a potential homicide. It's very important that you have your weapon secured and uh, perhaps not even on your body if it's safe to do so and that you receive the police from the perspective of someone who has just uh, really potentially committed a homicide. And that's an important note there. Even a justified self-defense shooting that results in a fatality is a homicide legally by the law and so that's an important mindset for a concealed carrier or an armed defender to have is that when police respond to a self-defense shooting uh, and if you're the shooter you when you declare that the shooting was in self-defense you're essentially admitting that you committed a homicide you're saying that it was justified, but you have to be in the mindset that when these officers respond, they're investigating a homicide, and you, by admission, are now the chief and only suspect in that homicide. We've encountered a lot of armed defenders that make an effort to talk their way out of being detained or going to jail in the wake of a self-defense shooting. That's almost always a mistake because they end up saying something that refutes maybe some physical evidence that causes their defense team uh, a challenge later on uh, in their legal defense. Uh, And so it's important for a concealed carrier or armed defender to have the mindset that they're being investigated for a homicide and be prepared to be detained or to even be arrested in the wake of a self-defense shooting. That's not the time to mount your legal defense. You want to have a lawyer on your side 
you want to have a strategic plan and you may just have to uh, subject yourself to a little indignity for a couple of days in the wake of a shooting for the benefit of a uh, coordinated uh, strategic legal response. That's what CCW Safe is all about. And that's what this top 10 list of things to do after a self-defense shooting is designed to do is to give you the best chance to survive the second fight. The first fight being the fight for your life and the second fight being the legal fight to show that you are justified in your use of deadly force. So again, thanks for listening. This is my conversation with Don West about points three and four on the top 10 list of things to do in the wake of a self-defense shooting. Well, let's transition into number three on the list here, which is initiate an emergency response. Because in in everything but a defensive display here, or um, you know, a wild shot that hurt no one but ended the the circumstance, somebody is critically injured or dying or dead. And if you were uh, attacked by an aggressor you can yourself be injured and and after you're sure you're safe and you've reported that this incident's happened now a, a concern for anybody's health including including the the life of the person that you've just shot perhaps uh becomes an important consideration and i, and I have to think about the amber geiger case when we talk about this Amber Geiger was the off-duty Dallas police officer who lived in one of those apartments where every floor looks the same and there's a parking garage that every floor looks the same. And after a double shift, she came home tired, thought her door was unlocked, thought there was an intruder in her apartment. She goes in, there's somebody there. She doesn't, he doesn't respond to her voice commands. She fires and then discovers to her horror moments later that she was on the wrong floor. She killed her downstairs or had shot her downstairs neighbor. And we've heard her like body or her 911 call where she's got him in his arms and she's desperately trying to get medical help to him as fast as possible. Uh, and and I, I am convinced that she sincerely, her whole focus is on hoping that this guy wouldn't die in her arms. Her, her concern for his life was palpable to me. And I think she was convicted, but her sentence was a fraction of what it could be. And I have to think that that genuine concern she had for the life of the person that she had shot and she thought legitimately in self-defense in her mind when she did it had some bearing on the, the judge's sentencing. Interesting that you mentioned that because uh, you're right. She was convicted. It was a very hard fought battle. There were lots of interesting legal issues about mistakes and reasonableness. I remember watching a lot of that trial. I even attended a little of it and realized how many times both sides, meaning the defense and the prosecution, used the word reasonable or reasonable activity, reasonable judgment, reasonable decision making. Uh, as they explained the events that led up to this uh, tragedy and of course ultimately the prosecution asked 
asked the jury to determine that a lot of what she did was unreasonable and therefore because it was unreasonable that she was guilty of a criminal act even though it was unintentional and it was under the circumstances uh, as you described. But I have to think that what you've talked about in terms of uh, how it struck you anyway as her, her compassion and her concern uh, may have mitigated uh, some of the sentence. It would not have necessarily prevented her from being convicted and didn't so long as the jury was convinced that under the totality of those circumstances that she acted unreasonably. What is an interesting anomaly in this particular case, the Amber Geiger case, is that in Texas the jury also imposes sentence, at least rec recommends a sentence that the judge ultimately imposes. So she was convicted of murder, but then after the sentencing presentation, uh, they recommended a far lesser sentence than one you might get typically in murder. In fact, a, a sentence more commensurate with, with manslaughter, actually. It was a fascinating experience, fascinating to see how all of that played out and how what we talk about in these podcasts, what you read about in the print material and the training material, how all of it kind of comes together to, to, you know, to be a, a case that has 50 lessons. For right, the they, just, they just keep pouring out. Yeah, I was thinking, we're talking about this, yeah. and um, the, the, we talked about the Zach Peters case, right? And he shot the three intruders who came into his, broke into his home through a sliding glass window during the middle of the day. He encountered them. He had his father's AR-15, uh, shot each of them, and and saw some of them hit the floor in the kitchen, retreated to his room, locked himself in and called 911. At a point during the call, it's clear that somebody's calling out in the kitchen. He hasn't killed all of them. And uh, I'm going to not get the what he said exactly right, but you can tell there's an indication there that there's someone alive and you need to get here quick. And I think if you're an investigator, that case never went to a jury obviously they they found it they, they declared that one justifiable self-defense but if you're an investigator looking on that you can tell that uh, compared to jerome ersland or or byron smith who go in and shoot them while they're down he had some concern for the people that he had shot he wasn't he wasn't hoping that they were dead he he said get here quick if you're going to save their lives I can't tell you the name of the case because I just heard it on a newscast uh, a while back. And what impressed me about it so much was it was the prosecutor talking about the the case that they had investigated, the claim of self-defense, it was a fatality, and in the decision not to pursue the charges. And I can't remember if they were charged and then dismissed or maybe it was during that window when the prosecutor evaluates the case and makes the decision what, if anything, to charge, and the decision in that case was not to charge. Among those things that he said to justify his decision not to file charges was that fact that the uh, criminal defendant, the, the defender, uh, had attempted to render aid right after the, the shooting. 
So that struck the prosecutor, and that's pretty impressive to me. If that's something that means so much to the prosecutor that he includes it in his press conference as a reason contributing to why charges weren't filed, that becomes pretty powerful stuff because it makes you think about the other side of that. What if the attitude had been cavalier and there had been no attempt to mitigate the physical harm or to provide some sort of life-saving? After all, how hard would it be? I, I, I don't know because I've never been in that situation. But how would it be to then attempt to save the life of the person who just moments ago was trying to take yours? He and something you said there too, where when a prosecutor makes a public statement about not filing charges and then explains why, we prosecutors are elected officials, so they have a constituency to perform for, for lack of a better word. And uh, I think we have to remember that prosecutors are also advocates for victims of crime. And they're going to be dealing with the family of the person that a defender shot. And they have to convince themselves, the family, and the public, especially if it's a case that's gotten any media attention, why they're not going to charge and or, or even just let a jury decide uh, and make that choice on their own in advance. And... I think if you can show a family that the, the person who was the defender had that care, you've just, you've just made it so much easier for the prosecutor to uh, explain why they're not going to charge you. Anything that you can do to give the prosecutor ammunition to not charge you and to explain it to their constituents is, is good for you. Right. And, 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 even expressing concern about the life of the person that you've just shot and even going so far as attempting to render aid um, is a huge is a huge you know, counterbalance for it, that. It may, it may be the last thing you want to do having survived the attack on your life, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about among these things you can do, the, the, our list of 10 that put you in a better position to receive favorable treatment from the authorities. And while it's a nice thing to save a life and a good compassionate thing to render aid, it also has that added benefit that it may very well be powerful evidence to the prosecutor when perhaps in a close case, trying to decide whether to charge you with murder, you know, whether to disrupt the next two years of your life in court, and then, depending on the outcome of the trial, perhaps, you know, the, the next 50 years of it. So it's uh, high-stakes stuff, and this is a win-win, you know. It, it's, it's good that you may be able to contribute to saving a person's life, even one that in your mind doesn't deserve the effort that you are making since what they trying to do to you, but also it may very well have an, a, a secondary benefit, an additional benefit. If, frankly, it makes yeah. you look good, and there's not, nothing wrong Here with that. Here in the, the notes that 
we got from CCW Safe on this point and issue emergency response. They they speak a little bit to something that you mentioned on our conversation about point number two, be the first client nine one one, which is this is your first opportunity to establish that this is a self defense case. Right? They say here, tell the nine one one operator something similar to I am the victim or I had to use my weapon in self-defense, or I was forced to defend myself. You're making the claim of self-defense here if you are the one who makes the 911 phone call and you want to set the framework for how um, the responders are going to look at this case. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess... Yeah, I, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna nitpick there just yeah, as you just yeah, I was said. Yeah, the too, but go ahead. Uh, I am the victim. I don't like I am the victim. You may very well be technically a victim because you were attacked, so you are the victim of the attack. The reason I don't like that phrase is because of sort of the pejorative context it has in the media mm, sometimes. It's a loaded word. Everyone claims to be the victim. Yeah, so you don't need to say that word. You can communicate just as effectively by saying, I was attacked. He attacked me. He tried to kill me. I had to defend yeah. myself. And we want to be real careful about what we say here, right? Because we talked about before, it's being recorded, and anything you say can be used against you, potentially. I guess what I feel here is, I've heard some people think there's like some magic words you can say like I was attacked and I was in fear for my life and that that somehow you know elves come out the self-defense elves come out and and cast a spell (laughs) and that that seals your fate as oh yeah clearly you've you've said the magic words it was self-defense and that's not the case yeah and I think about like the Michael Drake case um he was the parking lot shooter got in a fight with Marquise McLaughlin Marquise McLaughlin pushed him to the ground he fired one shot when the guy was lording above him, afraid that he might get beat up further. And he used very police-like terms in his interrogation describing what happened to him. And I think the lesson there is that it almost felt like he was too rote in his responses. And so, yeah, we, we've I am the victim or I had to use my weapon in self-defense. I think in the self-defense forums or in the Second Amendment conversation, there's these terms that get flown around. But what's really important is that your claim is genuine and makes sense in the context of what happened. And you just need to use your own words to describe what happened. But if you were uh, threatened with force to the point where you felt that you were going to suffer permanent physical injury or death, you can articulate that you were attacked and that and that you fired your weapon in self-defense or something like that. But it needs to be, don't get hung up on some pre-prescribed concocted words here. It needs to be an authentic um, plea of self-defense. Of course, especially if it sounds like you said, the word wrote or rehearsed or read from the back of a card as if it's this these magic words that all of a sudden the police will say, well, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to inconvenience right. you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me <laughs> Right here, yeah. You congratulations, uh, you cracked the code, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's important to make a statement, to make it clear that 
you were attacked and that you defended yourself. And you don't really have to say much more than that for the police to get the idea that's what happened in your mind. That will shift away because, of course, you know, self-defense is a claim that has to be raised by the defense in mm -hmm. some way. So if nothing else, you put the police on notice. It may not change anything that they do that night, including arresting you and taking you to jail and booking you for murder, but getting it out there that you were responding to an attack when you used force, that you weren't out there committing the crime without any, any legal basis for using that weapon, uh, I think gets it out there. It gives the police some insight maybe some things to look for that they wouldn't otherwise look for, maybe a way to question witnesses that they might not have otherwise uh, directed their attention to. And it allows you to sort of stake that out early on. But of course, keep in mind that once you do that, as soon as you say, I was attacked, I am the victim, I acted in self-defense, you have just now admitted about 90% of the yeah. crime of murder. So you said you're the one that did it. Uh, you're the one that pulled the trigger. There's no mistake of who was involved and that you did it on purpose. There's no accident here. There's no, oh, the gun went off accidentally, which what reminds us of the fellow in Detroit. Sure, Ted Wafer. Yeah, on his line one. Well, not the yeah, one call, but, but told police that uh, it was an accident and there's no such mm -hmm. thing as accidental self-defense. It has to be on purpose. So once you stake that out with the police, that's, that's your defense. And um, now on, on, on the plus side, you know, from a legal perspective, the prosecution ultimately at trial, and certainly the way the case would be investigated as there are charging decisions made and case evaluations made, the prosecutor has to prove it wasn't self-defense. So once you raise self-defense officially in trial by having some evidence introduced, whether it comes through cross-examination or even in the prosecutor's own case or ultimately what happens a lot of times is the defendant um, has to testify to get that evidence in the record of self-defense. But once that happens, then the prosecutor must prove it wasn't self-defense. And that's not always easy to do. So it's a very solid, favorable defense if the facts right. justify I mean, The it. defender doesn't have but, to prove that it was self-defense. The prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't. So they have a high burden. And that's, that's the benefit when you, when you make that claim from the beginning. If, if you don't get it out there, um, in fact, there are lots and lots of cases where I've read them in the appellate courts and some that I've watched in the news where there was no clear evidence in the record of self-defense. And the judge denied the defense lawyer the opportunity even to argue it. And without there being a jury instruction and being allowed to argue it, the jury isn't allowed even to render a decision on that. They can't decide whether it was self-defense because those hoops weren't, uh, yeah. you know, weren't jumped through at, at the beginning. Well, to, get, to talk about all 10 of these, Don, I think would take us maybe two, three hours. But I think to uh, what would make a nice round conversation for what we're talking about today is, is to step into 
number four here on the CCW list, which is prepare for responding officers. And I want to start this conversation from where we were just standing, where we've basically told 911, and therefore we've told the authorities that we have committed a homicide, essentially, right? I've, I've, if, if they die, then it's homicide, and if not, then it's a, it's a, criminally it would be an assault with a deadly weapon if they, if they happen to survive. So we've committed a, a very serious felony unless our claim's correct, and, and we're saying that we've done it, right? And so now we're going to have an encounter with law enforcement. We are armed and we have just shot somebody that can be that can be a complicated interaction right oh for sure and, yes and we've known yes. from like i want to go back to the zach peters case because that's one of our great examples of someone who did practically everything right by the book and with a a a true defender's heart right and so he realizes he's talking to authorities he's in a room with a very powerful weapon he's got an ar-15 and the responding officers once they figure out what's going on with these alleged intruders now they want to make sure that they're safe and interacting with uh, a young guy who's got a powerful rifle and so the dispatchers gave him some indication on like you know if it's secure, take the magazine out, put the weapon on the bed, and you're going to come out and present yourself to the officers in a very specific way. You know, often, often it's you know even you're going to put your phone down now. We don't want them to see you with a, a phone in your hand. You're going to even if you're not necessarily considered a threat, they they want to know that they can see your hands. Right, you'd mentioned uh, on a couple of occasions earlier that when it when it comes to being safe and neutralizing a threat, that may include uh, having a gun pointed at a potential threat to keep them not a threat. But if police show up and they see there is an altercation and somebody's got a gun out, that you're in a terrible place at that point, right? So, so uh, preparing for responding officers means letting them know that you've got things under control, that your weapon is not in play and that you're ready to follow their instructions when there's this handoff between 911 and actual officers on the scene. Yeah, and that could be a little tricky because there's a lot of adrenaline flowing right then. There's a lot of confusion. The police don't know what they're rolling up to. They have limited information and they probably don't have the 911 call right. itself they i they may have some access to it but it's typically even ongoing i know the protocol typically is to keep the person on the phone until there's actual police right. response but of course if you have that situation where there's someone injured on the ground uh, and you're holding them at gunpoint, that really complicates things there. The, the police, first and foremost, want to be safe, and then they want to be sure that everybody else is safe. And the more information they can have rolling into this, 
the higher their comfort level will be that when they recognize certain things, they'll know that it's consistent with what they've been told and therefore they'll feel a lot safer about it. And I suppose when you've told the 911 dispatcher or that you've had someone make it clear uh, if they're on the phone instead that you're there, this is what you're wearing, you are the victim of, a, uh, of an attack, the attacker is injured but still on the scene and that you are holding the person at gunpoint uh, until such time as there's arrival and there's no mistake about who you are, what you look like, what you're wearing, uh, a good description of the situation. Now that's going to be a bit unusual. We haven't seen that very often in the work that we do with CCW Safe, but we have to consider that possibility. Typically what happens though is there's someone on the ground um, that's been shot or you're the only person there because the uh, attacker mm. ran off. Well, and if, and if you're not the one making the call, right? If somebody, if a third party made the call because you're still engaged in this, then the police are going to show up. All they know is that there's been shots fired and they're going to see a victim and then somebody else may have a gun, right? You want to, you want to, clear away all that ambiguity and make sure you're not the one who gets shot by cops in the, in the aftermath of this. But I think about like uh, in the Michael Dunn case, uh, Michael Dunn didn't call 911. Uh, he didn't know for hours that he had even killed somebody. When they caught up with him, they called him and they told him that they're outside of the house that he was in and that what he was to do was to uh, hang up the phone and take off his shirt and come out of the house with his hands in the air. And then when he sees the officers, put his hands behind his head and turn around and get on his knees. And, and he did those things. Uh, there's sort of an art to being uh, arrested, isn't there? Well, when you look at the notion that the police want to be safe themselves. They want other people to be safe. They don't want any surprises. So obviously they don't need an argument. All they need is compliance. And if the instructions are clear and you are fully compliant, even if you don't like it, even if you see no reason why they would treat you like this, uh, the bottom line is compliance makes everybody safer. Nobody gets jittery. There's no quick movements, there's no arguing, there's no yelling, but I'm the guy he tried to kill, nonsense. Why are you treating me like this? I'll have your badges, you know, I don't deserve this. I'm the victim here, I'm the victim here. You start going through that stuff and you're going to make everybody nervous and uh, you're certainly going to set the stage for all of that subjective yeah. stuff that when they evaluate your demeanor and your attitude and the likelihood that you acted truly in self-defense. Because keep in mind that once you've admitted that you were the person that shot and killed this person, uh, it's pretty limited what's left. It really only has to do with what was going on in your mind at the time you pulled the trigger and were the circumstances, the facts surrounding that moment in time, sufficient to justify your decision? Sure. And when the police the show up at first, they if don't have any, those any. surrounding circumstances yet. So, right. so maybe right. a great place so, to sort of start wrapping up this portion of our conversation on these 
10 things to do after a shooting incident gets us kind of back where we started, Don. And when it comes to preparing for responding officers, understand that you, by making yourself defense claim, are in fact the prime suspect in a homicide investigation. And you're going to be treated as that to some degree. It may not be entirely dignified. You may find yourself in the back of a squad car with handcuffs on. You may find yourself um, uh, looking at a potential interrogation, right? And we're going to get to some of those things on how to interact with these law enforcement officers once they've shown up and start asking you questions in our next conversation. But uh, I, I feel like I've seen a lot of really good people cause us uh, really a lot of trouble in their criminal defense by saying things that they think will get them out of being arrested tonight that risk them going to jail for a significant portion of the rest of their lives. And I, I, what I want CCW safe members, concealed carriers, armed defenders to consider is if you've killed somebody in self-defense, no matter how justified you believe you are, be prepared mentally that you're going to jail tonight. And it might be a couple days before you, get to even talk about bond or being released you have a you've you've done something a, a life has been taken and now there are a series of legal ramifications that are going to unfold whether or not you're ultimately determined to be justified because you even said in the preamble to this conversation that a a prosecution can take you 18 months to two years before you get to a jury and in some of the most clear-cut cases of self-defense that we've seen, those investigations, even with the defender not in jail, uh, can last four or five weeks easy. Oh, certainly. Yeah, and that's, that's when everything looks good and they just have to dot the I's and cross the T's before making that announcement that no charges That's right. So, so if, you've, if you've shot somebody, you're not going to work tomorrow. <laughs> And and you're not going to get a good night's sleep, and there's not going to be a scenario where they uh, pop some champagne for you and congratulate you on getting the bad guy. Uh, you, you need to really get in the mindset of you are the chief suspect in a homicide. Well, that should be that should be your that should be the expectation. There may be exceptions, and there may be people that aren't actually. No, that happens all the time. You're right about that. Least, but the. Ex- yeah, the, the expectation is, though, you should, go, and because it should be the expectation that you'll be arrested and that you'll go to jail, don't be surprised when it happens, even if you believe in your mind you were completely justified, even if you're convinced the evidence will show that you are completely justified, even if you feel put upon and inconvenienced and scared, um, expect that to happen. If it doesn't, good for you, but when it does, don't be the kind of person that proves that you're the the jerk that the prosecutor wants you to be. Because if they're looking to what tips the scale, if you're cursing and yelling and saying, I'm the victim here and I didn't do anything wrong and how are you treating me, why are you treating me like this, you've got a built, and, and of course there may be other evidence to corroborate 
that kind of attitude, whether it's on social media or, or have you, all of a sudden the prosecutor's argument is tailor-made. He didn't shoot him because he was scared. He shot him because he was angry or because he was fill in the blank. If it's any other reason other than he had a reasonable fear of an imminent threat or an imminent attack on his life, imminently right now that he was afraid his life was going to be taken. If it's anything other than a reasonable belief, reasonable fear, self-defense yeah, falls apart. If you try to talk your way out of being arrested that night, I'm almost, I can almost guarantee you you're going to say something that's going to cause your defense attorney a massive headache and perhaps ulcers as he tries to keep you out of jail for the best part of the rest of your life. Well, another time we can talk about that, the defense lawyer's nightmare often is the statements, that, the imprudent statements, the off-the-cuff statements, the emotional statements that were made uh, about this. All right, guys, that's the podcast for today. I appreciate you listening through to the end. Uh, in the not-too-distant future, Don West and I will take a break again from our normally scheduled programming to bring you uh, points five and six on the top ten list of things to do after self-defense shooting. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. <laughs>